This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries Podcast. Today we are in our sixth session of an eight-part series called The Bible Message in a Nutshell, The Plan of Redemption, Part 2. Here is Tori Bjorkland, President of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship. I've been sharing about my view of the gospel in this, in this series, and I wrote it out in about six pages or so, and um, read it in its entirety um, one Sunday, and then have been unpacking each of the different points. And um, we covered the fall of man a few weeks ago, and then last week the fall of angels, and began the the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption, this section is kind of an overview of redemption, and then the next section goes into the means of redemption, and the result of redemption is the section after that. Okay, so this is what I wrote and shared several weeks back. When man disobeyed God, he became disconnected from the means of eternal sustenance. Mankind was not only separated from the tree of life, but also from the source of life, a union with God. Rather than giving up on his intent, God chose to carry out a plan of redemption that would bring individual men and women back into the purpose for which they were created. God will give to each individual the same option he gave to the first man and woman. He will allow us to choose life or death. The plan God chose for this redemption was to come into his own creation as a man, constrained by the same physical nature as man, and live a life fully obedient to himself. From that position of moral purity, he will die a physical death, suffering the same consequence of sin that all other men suffer, and then through the power of life given to him by God the Father, rise from that state of death. By doing so, he will vanquish death, removing its power over mankind. In this process, he would also address the issues of moral governance by providing a substitutionary death, the innocent for the guilty. This form of atonement accomplished all that was necessary to restore the moral order to creation and allow the personal beings who participate in this plan to be recreated into their intended existence a never-ceasing spiritual being contained in God and his reality. This plan of redemption is a mystery and yet a reality. We don't understand all of its implications, but can experience the substance of his existence. Okay, that's quite a bit. Last week, I pointed out these assertions that were made by those statements. One, God told Adam he would die if he disobeyed God. When God told him that, he was referring to both a spiritual and a physical death. The spiritual death was immediate, while the physical death took a while. This is the second assertion. Spiritual death is a separation from the spiritual resources that sustain spiritual life. Third one was God removed access to the tree of life 
Fourth one was our sin removed access to God. The fifth assertion, God carried out a plan of redemption that would bring the option of salvation to all men. And we spent a fair amount of time looking at the verses for the scope of the option of salvation. And I asserted that the teaching on uh, limited atonement is not one that I agree with as scriptural. I then pointed out the assertion, the application of that salvation, the receiving of it, depends on each person. And that's where we left it off. Any questions or comments about that before we move forward in the next assertions? When you say spiritual death was immediate, I think there was some remedy that was also in place immediately. Okay, yeah, so I think that's a really good point. So although spiritual death was immediate, there was some remedy that was also available and immediate. And so we know this has to be so. You brought up the issues of sacrifices that, that um, Abel brought a sacrifice that was acceptable to God and Cain didn't. And Cain interacted with God, didn't he, in some way. We also know that it was so because of Enoch, and Noah, Enoch walked with God and Noah walked with God. Not a lot of people, for some reason, remember that Noah, that the Bible says that Noah walked with God. We don't know exactly what that means or what it looked like, and we don't know the information that they had, but we have evidence that they had information about a means of relationship with God. And you find this with others as well. You go through, there's a line throughout the Bible, Melchizedek, Abraham, and then Abraham's, some of Abraham's descendants, not all of them, and on and on it goes. You have Job, presumably before Melchizedek and Abraham, but we sometime in that time, time frame. There's a thread of God interacting with people and doing so in the acceptance of them in his life, in, in his involvement, in his presence. Not everybody had the same experience as Enoch, for example, who it says was no more. <laughs> so some people refer to that as a translation. He just went from one state, this mortal physical state, into an immortal state with his body disappearing. But we don't really know exactly what that means. But we do know that he walked with God, and God accepted him and brought him to where he was. And we have a picture of what that looks like in Revelation when that happens for everybody. But there's a lot we really don't know. We're going to talk about in the following session about God applying this atonement retroactively. And so this atonement that we're talking about as the remedy, as the redemption that God provided, it was available to Enoch. And that's why Enoch could walk with God. It was available to Cain and Abel. It was available, I would assert, to Adam and Eve. It certainly was available to Noah and his descendants, and on and on it goes. Even in the case of spiritual death, 
there is an awareness that God has placed within the human person that is, I, and I, the analogy I used is like a seed. It's a seed that is available to be germinated. But it, it, it takes the person himself to respond to the universal knowledge of God. When I get this, by the way, from Romans chapter 1, verses oh, around 20 or so, uh, 19, 20, 21, um, there it talks about the universal uh, knowledge of God and of his divine attributes, by the way, the divinity of God, of his power, and, uh, and that, that God placed this within people. It also talks about conscience, them knowing what is right, which, by the way, where did that come from? The knowledge of good and evil. That's an interesting thing. Do you remember when Adam said, well, we were ashamed because we were naked? You remember what God responded back? Who told you you were naked? Where did you get that sense that there was something wrong with that? And I see this as a grace from God that even in the be very beginning, in the midst of rebellion, God provided a means of grace that might draw us to himself because of this conscience that was implanted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible seems to be clear that there is a spiritual death that occurred as a result of sin. At the same time, that doesn't mean that there is no knowledge of God or no way to be affected by the move of God. But it seems as though the key to allowing that effect to start life in us, to realize the potential of life, the key to that is the will of man to submit himself to the authority of God. So the application of salvation, the receiving of it, depends upon each person. That's what I would just got done saying. So here's my next assertion that we're going to cover. Jesus was a man just like us in nature. One of the common doctrines that is part of an aspect of the doctrine of original sin will say that the nature of man is sinful. And part of then the assertion as to why Jesus did not have a human father was because the nature of sin is transmitted by the father. Apparently in, what is that, the Y chromosome or something like that, the aspect that comes from the father. And therefore, he did not have that sin aspect in his nature, but all other men and women have because they were born from a father and I remember having this conversation with somebody and they asked me well if you don't believe that sin is transmitted by the father why did Jesus need to be born of the Holy Spirit I said well because he was the son of God not the son of Joseph oh I never thought of that so I want to offer up some verses around this. And the fact that Jesus could die 
in my understanding of the scriptures, fulfills the same teaching that Paul said about all other men and women, all other mankind in Romans chapter 5. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8 right now, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. This is under the assertion that Jesus was a man just like us in nature. Romans chapter 8, let's start with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, and here's the key phrase, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this phrase here, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, is one of those verses. Let's take a quick look at Philippians 2.7. We have a similar phrase. So we are, by Paul here writing in verse 5, encouraged to have an attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. That, that word translated grasped, we think of as grasped as something we can understand or not, but certainly Jesus understood what it meant to be equal with God. And the, the word there is, is to grab hold of um, or hung on to. So Jesus in verse uh, 6 was not regarded equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 2, I think, is very specific here. 14, let's see where we can start here. Yeah, verse 14 is a good place to start. We'll go through about verse 18. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now, one thing I want to point out, I've heard the argument that the word likeness is a similarity and not the same thing. This is one of the reasons why I use the verse in Hebrews. There is no question in the language whether it's talking about the same thing. There's no way to get around the same thing. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, the same flesh and blood, that through death... And by the way, that's the only way he could experience death is by taking on the same nature, which was a mortal nature that was only brought into this world as a result of the fall. Jesus Christ participated fully in the fall of man with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute. But in the physical nature of mankind, everything physical that was a result of the fall Jesus participated in. Likewise, he also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Again, it's a little tough to get away from that scope when you read that portion. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. A little bit more in chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, we have again the reference to his flesh. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Probably the only man alive that could claim on his own basis, on the basis of his piety, that he ought to be heard. And he was indeed heard on the basis of his piety. Although we do have history of God referring to people as righteous, and James talking about the prayer of a righteous man, that righteousness, as we learn, comes through the redemption that God provided. But Jesus, of course, was not in need of that because he, the next point we'll cover is that he lived morally pure. But uh, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God, verse 10, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I believe that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus had the physical nature of mankind that everybody else participates in. And as a result, he experienced death, he experienced temptation, he experienced hunger. For all we know, he had a fever when he was a baby, when he was teething. Maybe he even, even had a sickness or something like that. We don't know. There's a lot of things we could speculate on, but we don't need to do that. The thing that I do want to point out, though, is that the result of Adam and Eve's sin that is universal is death, physical death, mortality, the fact that we don't live in this body forever. The result of the sin of Adam and Eve in our spirit, and by the way, each one of us were started with the spirit at the time we became a being. I would argue that that's the time of conception. But there's nothing in the Bible that causes us to think that our spirits existed before our bodies began. We began in the womb, and God gave mankind a spirit. Jesus' spirit did not begin in the womb. That's why he had a different kind of conception and the Spirit entered into Mary and began to create a physical body through the same means that we experience to house locally this person of Jesus Christ. And through that body, he lived a life experiencing everything that is common 
to mankind. That, by the way, is why he was born, and again, I'll go into this at another time, why he was born not spiritually dead, because a live spirit was placed in him from conception. He started out with a live spirit, but with a body of death. Do children inherit spiritual death? Yes. Do they inherit guilt? No. So the next step that we, when we talk about this later is when you ask the question of guilt, do they inherit guilt? The guilt, so the point that Paul points out in Romans 5 is that everybody is suffering the same um, condemnation. He uses the phrase condemnation. And he says, as evidence, because everybody's, even those that didn't sin in the same way that Adam did, have died. So the condemnation he's speaking of there is mortality, right? But we also see that there is a common universal need for life, for the dead to come alive. What we also see, though, is every reference to condemnation of guilt is because all have sinned. So the Romans 3.23, for example, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So one could make an argument, and I would say it could be upheld by the scriptures that one is not spiritually dead until they sin the first time. And then they experience the same experience that Adam and Eve experienced when they sinned from a spiritual perspective. And I would have a difficult time splitting those hairs. It nonetheless becomes universal, whether at six months or zero months or 18 months or whatever, you know, wherever you want to put that, the insistence of the Bible is that it's universal. And my interpretation is that it is because they don't have the same opportunity of spiritual influence, of being filled with the Spirit that Jesus had from his birth. But I'll grant you that it's possible that people ha are not spiritually dead, but they become spiritually dead when they sin, as far as I understand the scriptures. So it's, it's a little bit of a, shall we call it conjecture on my part, as to whether it's at Concept, you know, conception or shortly thereafter. <laughs> I believe the Bible, the scriptures teach, and again, I wrote, I, I referenced Romans 3.23 as an example of that, that the condemnation of hell, if you will, and the second death and everything that comes in that future is held by God to be a result of the individual's responsibility and and he explicitly says in uh, the Old Testament don't say <laughs> you guys keep saying the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge you remember that prophecy where is that is it Ezekiel he said don't say that of me a man suffers as a result of his own sin so we have to figure out how do you put that together with Romans 5, 
where it's a clear teaching that there is a universal condemnation. So what is that universal condemnation as a result of the fall? Well, I, what I'm submitting today as my interpretation of that, my understanding of that, is that it is physical death, mortality, and Jesus participated in that, but it is also spiritual death, which was what happened to Adam and Eve immediately at the fall, and that what God's redemption did was to bring spiritual life to a race that doesn't have it on its own. Um, but the condemnation that the Bible makes clear is that man has rejected that spiritual life that was offered to him. And in order to accept it or reject it, there is a universal knowledge of it that's provided to man. And we can find this. We'll just turn to there real quick since I've referred to Romans chapter 1. We can start at verse 18. The wrath of God, verse 18, Romans 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, so right there, the first thing you want to notice is that the concept here of suppressing the truth is an active participation on the part of the individuals. Because that which is, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them since the creation of the world, verse 20, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his internal power and divine nature, okay, the divinity of God, I, I made the assertion earlier in one of my statements that the divinity of God is a universal knowledge of mankind. His Invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawly creatures. Anyway, so right here what we have is verse 21, even though they knew God, how did they know God? Not only from his, from the external creation, but also the impartation of the knowledge of God that he placed within mankind. So it's a twofold testimony of God. And the insistence here is that the wrath of God is there because of the insistence of people to reject what God has made plain to them about himself. We find the same thing, by the way, in John, right? The very first chapter of John. This is the condemnation. Verse 11 um, and 12. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And then there was another uh, spot here. In him was the light, verse 4, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, another place, chapter 3. 
verse 19, this is the judgment of the, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The condemnation that we see over and over again is a reference to the individual person who restrains or pushes back the truth that continues to come into him through God himself, through a conscience that has been, been given to us, and through uh, what is, can be known by what is created, what is observed through creation. So that's the condemnation. That's an individual condemnation. The universal, uh, I would assert, is mortality and a spirit that cannot interact with God on a spiritual basis. So God has to interact with us in what way? And this is Romans 8. The law came from God to what? The flesh. And that's why it was weak. It wasn't completely ineffective but it is not the same as God communicating with us on a spiritual basis. Um, you might remember Paul said that his words are words of wisdom, but they're spiritually appraised, and those who are not spiritual can't understand them. Jesus was a man just like us in nature, yet he lived a life morally pure. I think we won't need to cover that in detail. There's verses that, that state that. By the life he lived, he is able to condemn sin in the flesh. And this is Romans 8.3. He condemned sin in the flesh. And what, is, what does that mean? He showed that temptation was itself not the power that man would say it is. That the law, keeping of the law was insurmountable. In fact, the Old Testament, God claims that this is not something that is too high or something that you can't reach up to. But Jesus showed that in, in spite of having all the same nature as mankind, the law was something that he was able to keep before God. And so through being a man of flesh, he fulfilled the law and at the same time condemned those who don't and made it clear that this is a personal condemnation for individuals that are trying to commend themselves to God through the law. He was also able to overcome death and remove its power from us. Interestingly, he did not raise himself from the dead. Is that clear? We read that in Hebrews. He offered up prayers to him who is able to raise him from the dead. This was not a power that God allowed him to keep within himself. When he set aside his glory, he became totally mortal. And so God the Father raised him from the dead. And the scripture is clear about that. And then gave to him the keys of hell and death. He, he now holds that, and he has the power over death because he lived the life he did in the flesh, experienced death, and because of that life that he lived, 
God the Father raised him from the dead. He didn't have to apply a redemption to raise him from the dead. There was no need for redemption, and Jesus didn't need to be redeemed because of the life that he lived. And as a result of that life, God raised him from the dead and then gave him the ability to save others from death. He gave him the right to choose. It says that he's the one that will actually condemn or not condemn. So therefore, he's able to remove its power from us. I just want to cover two things real quick here. God publicly displayed the atonement. Romans chapter 3, 25 and 26. Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the point here is that God publicly displayed the atonement, recorded it in history, in order to address the issues of moral governance. What does that mean? That means that nobody can claim that he is playing favorites and he is willy-nilly just choosing one person and not another and not holding their sin against this person while holding the sin against this person. But instead, he provided a means of showing how he could, through a universally available atonement, apply his grace to forgive those who accept the offer of amnesty, of pity, of mercy. And he did it in a way that showed he was concerned about the righteousness of his government. And and one of the things that's really amazing is there are very few times in history where something like this could have been recorded in a way that was able to be transmitted universally through most of the known world at the time and also maintained in history very, very accurately. And God chose a time where the record of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, I'm going to say nearly can't be refuted nearly only because people will always find a way to reject what they don't want to believe. And so people will refute it, but there's, there's not a reasonable way to refute it. And had this happened in some other era where there wasn't a common language, a road system, uh, system, I mean, so many people educated, so many ways to transmit that information, it could have been lost in, in history. But God did it publicly at the right time so that it would be maintained throughout all of history and uh, transmitted through. I mean, if you look at the travels of Paul, for example, went all around all of these areas and was able to communicate with all these people. And a big part of that was because of the subsequent both Greek and Roman empires that were built throughout all of that part of the world. So God did this when he did it, I think for good reason, but he made it public so that it was clear 
that he was concerned about doing the right thing, even in the eyes of his subjects. So he wouldn't have to do it. He could do anything he wants, right? But he did it in a way that was um, designed to show that he was concerned about, so we call it, justice. Let me pray. God, there's a lot here for us to think about, but the thing that just strikes me is that you have been working from the very beginning to bring us into a relationship with you. You've removed every obstacle, and the only thing we have left is our own excuses. And I thank you for that, and I pray that by your mercy and your grace, that you would continue to even remove those excuses without how, in every way that you can, without violating our personhood, that we might see, that we might see a revival, an expansion of your kingdom, of people that want to, uh, that want the truth, and that are willing to allow their deeds to be exposed to the light, to repent of those deeds and to show that you have been working in their heart. Help us to be part of that. Help us to be continuously coming to the light and help us to be continually representing you in a way that shows the reality of who you are in this world. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Our vision is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church, using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more messages by Tori B. Orkland, make sure to subscribe. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, visit our website at www.regenerationcenter.org.